Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. All you happy warriors, great to be together with you here on the only show that reveals regularly how the world really works. And one of the ways that the world really works is that we human beings have to extract from an often unwilling earth the things we need. On an individual level, that might mean finding a way to catch Pacific salmon and growing Brussels sprouts and finding a way to make a fire to cook them and to be able to eat them together. Maybe it means uh, raising sheep and growing cotton to make clothing and all the other more sophisticated things we need eventually, including oil and steel. Now, for, uh, for countries, it's exactly the same. Countries need to be able to have access to the things they need, whether it's food or oil. Japan went to war in World War II over oil because the Japanese islands had no oil, and uh, the British and the Americans were basically shutting off oil supplies to Japan. Well, right now, my dear friends, I think you will agree that we are all dependent on batteries, and the kind of batteries that at the moment show the most promise are called lithium-ion batteries. The problem is always one of how much electricity can you store in every unit of weight of a battery. You all know how heavy a car battery weighs, how much it weighs, and, and that is so. In order to be able to handle the heavy starting loads when you press the button to start your motor, it needs to be a very heavy battery. Uh, for your computer and for your telephone, you'd like a lighter battery. That's where lithium-ion batteries come in. Uh, the um, uh, interesting, very interesting guy, um, Elon Musk of Tesla, uh, will happily tell you that he staked much of his reputation and fortune on the future of lithium-ion batteries. He even started an entire factory to make lithium-ion batteries because the entire floor of the Tesla car is essentially a huge lithium-ion battery. Now, guess what kind of substance is required to make lithium-ion batteries. By the way, iron is I-O-N, not the element I-R-O-N with the uh, chemical symbol F-E. No, uh, it's lithium-ion, I-O-N. So what do you think is the most important ingredient of these crucially valuable lithium-ion batteries? Yes, well done. I knew that the listening demographic of this audience is extremely high level. You're exactly right. It's a substance called lithium. And where is lithium chiefly found? Well, the majority of lithium reserves in the world, lithium oxide, are found in Chile and Argentina. Now, these are two countries in South America. Chile is on the Pacific coast. Uh, Argentina is on the, uh, the Atlantic coast. And between them is a huge range of mountains known as the Andes Mountains. And um, one of the problems that that region has had in terms of economic development is transport between the two countries. Um, Argentina would like access to Pacific Ocean ports, and Chile would like access to Atlantic Ocean ports and the Argentinian market. 
At the moment, there is a road. It's virtually impossible in winter. It's very slow and very difficult and very challenging the rest of the year because it climbs up over the Andes and goes down the other sides. It's very tough. Well, great news. A tunnel is being built through the Andes. It is a huge engineering project. Huge tunneling through the base of the Andes to end up with what is essentially a horizontal highway between uh, Argentina and Chile. It's going to be incredible. Um, This is a time, as this goes forward, it's a time to be thinking about investing in those two countries. It's phenomenal. A great project. Um, Guess who's going to be building the project you won't be horrified to hear that it's China is going to be the the uh, contracting. Now, when I say China, I don't just mean a Chinese contracting company like the China Tunneling Corporation or the China Road and Bridge Corporation. Uh, no, it's essentially the Chinese government, as all those entities are essentially arms of the Chinese government. Do you think there could be any risk to America's access to lithium if China ends up controlling Argentinian and uh, and uh, Chilean lithium exports, which I confidently predict they will. I think the Chinese strategy is absolutely brilliant. And what I'm going to be talking about on this show is showing you how that works. But first of all, let's go back to somewhere where we can already see how Chinese strategies have worked, and that is Africa. We're going to take a journey to the east coast of Africa and to the country called Kenya and to its only harbor called Mombasa. In 1956, the Columbia Corporation put out a movie called Beyond Mombasa. It starred Cornell Wilde and also Donna Reed. And... um, it had in it a, a, a British actor called Leo Gen. Gen, G-E-N-N. I don't know how that's pronounced. But uh, Leo Gen played the role of Ralph Hoyt, a missionary. Okay, the movie is set in Africa, and we're talking about the 1950s. So as you can imagine, uh, it was... <laughs> viewed with today's sensibilities, I have no doubt that the movie would be dismissed as hideously racist because the depiction of the indigenous Africans in Kenya, which is where this was, was British Kenya still in in those days. Kenya didn't achieve its independence till uh, about 10 years later or a bit more. But uh, at the time, it was British Kenya. It was a big outpost of British expats. A lot of uh, British uh, folks, even high uh, high society people, who for one reason or another uh, were not doing well, things had gone wrong with their lives, they moved to Kenya. And there was a very lively community of British expats living in Kenya uh, during this period. Um, Kenya was a, an important British colony. And uh, the British really did build the country up. So the movie then depicts um, the the story of of, uh, white people coming to Kenya and they find a mine, whatever it is. Bottom line is that that, uh, Leo Gen plays Ralph Hoyt, a missionary. 
and the the movie uh, came across my radar screen and was of interest only because Ralph Hoyt, the missionary, uh, is turn and spoiler alert. Okay, <laughs> any of you intending to watch Beyond Mombasa? Uh, 1956 by the Columbia uh, movies don't do it it's it's really not worth it but uh, if you did you'd discover that completely unexpectedly there were no clues uh, and I think you sort of end up feeling that they didn't play fair with you because you'd never have been able to figure out the bad guy uh, is actually the missionary and it's interesting to me because pretty much um, until, as and you know, I always say about nineteen early nineteen sixties, pretty much until that time, uh, the Catholic character, the Christian character, was always depicted as wholesome, moral, decent, upright, uh, all round good person, and it really wasn't until uh, the nineteen sixties that we began to see the the priest depicted as the bad guy the pastor depicted as the bad guy but until that time it was always good and that was sort of one of the huge changes that came about in movies and i think the sound of music might have been the last time where we saw a uh, a decent and upright portrayal in this case the mother superior of the convent that julie andrews was at uh, comes across as wise and compassionate just a, a really outstanding human being but a few years earlier beyond Mombasa uh, missionary Leo uh, missionary Ralph Hoyt uh, turns out to be absolutely insane and he, he's he's killing people uh, altogether okay fine uh, what's interesting however of course is that to me Mombasa uh, the port city of Kenya is down, obviously, at sea level, and it's always been an important harbor. Um, interestingly enough, uh, because there was, fr from the earliest times, there was travel between Israel and the whole east coast of Africa. It was mostly Arab traders. There was a lot of uh, slavery going on and uh, a lot of trading in general. But a lot of the names of places up that trading route uh, were of Hebrew origin because originally that route between um, Israel, the bottom, the tip of Israel in the Red Sea and all the way down the coast was very, very well traveled. And so, for instance, Going on your journey up uh, the coast of East Africa towards Israel, you would pass Somalia on your left and you would pass Yemen on your right. Well, not surprisingly, those two nations were named left and right in Hebrew. Somal is left in Hebrew. Yemen is right in Hebrew. And so Somalia and Yemen were respectively left-hand side and right-hand side of your course as the waterway narrowed and uh, you began to approach Israel. Um, Mombasa uh, is a contraction of the two words water land, Maim Yabasha. Um, in Hebrew, the SH sound is the same as the S sound and uh, uh, water is the double m sound water land why well if you fly over the mombasa region you will see that it's just this huge area of uh, water and land it's islands and inlets and waterways and 
and bays and uh, and uh, rivers and all kinds of things. Anyway, if there ever was a place that deserved the sobriquet of uh, water land, that would be Mombasa. And there it is, big bustling port, uh, very old uh, old city. There's an Arab. Uh, there's an, a very strong Arab uh, component to the city and the neighboring areas. And um, there it is down at sea level. Meanwhile, the main population of Kenya, uh, the main city of Kenya is Nairobi, uh, is up on the plateau, much, much higher than uh, Mombasa and quite far inland. Uh, When I say quite far, I'm going to say seven seven or eight hundred miles, something like that. It's it's a long time. I took a motorcycle through Africa as a lock when I was 22. But um, uh, and so I'm just going on on memory. I haven't looked it up. But but from Mombasa to Nairobi, it's uh, it's got to be like seven, eight, nine hundred miles, something like that. It's a good long distance. And there's also an elevation gain. And meanwhile, the the center of British administration of the country was Nairobi. Um, And that was really the the city. And even today, uh, outside of South Africa, Nairobi is, uh, it remains a very bustling big city, um, having vastly outgrown its original size. But, uh, But there it is. I think perhaps... And I may be wrong, but was Queen, was Princess Elizabeth, uh, was she in Nairobi when she heard that her father had died? I'm not sure about that. At any rate, I'm just making the point that Nairobi is a significant city. Well, the British had a problem, and that is that everything that arrived in Kenya from the homeland, from the United Kingdom, had to come by ship, obviously. And uh, how do you get the stuff from the coastal port of Mombasa up to Nairobi? So they built a railroad. The British built this railroad. It was a huge undertaking. I mean, it it was built in 1900, I think from like 1896 to 1903, something like that, around about 1900. took five, six years um, they brought in workers from another part of the British Empire, from India, tens of thousands of workers. And at the end of the job, about uh, five or 10,000 of the workers decided not to go back to India, and they stayed in Kenya. That became the foundation of the very large Indian population of East Africa. And it wasn't until... Um, Kenyan independence, and in Uganda, a little bit to the north was Idi Amin and uh, his brutality that eventually chased them out. But the Indians did a huge amount for commerce and trade in East Africa, earning themselves, as you can imagine, much hatred and jealousy. But um, meanwhile, the uh, railroad was built, and with typical British eccentricity, they built it on a non-standard gauge. They built it on... uh, uh, like 39 inches. They built it in exactly a one meter wide gauge and uh, it did the trick. So much so that uh, there were a number of major ferry boats. Big ships were running on Lake Victoria. How did they get there? Well, the boats were built in Scotland, disassembled, packed into huge crates, 
and sent by ship to Mombasa, transferred to this railway, brought up to Nairobi, and then a little bit further, the railway extended to the shores of Lake Victoria. Uh, They were taken off and reassembled. And these are like uh, 2,000-ton vessels, big, big, big boats. And they constituted the very first ferry boats that served Lake Victoria in the heart of Africa. And... uh, and, um, Meanwhile, the, uh, the, the British ran the country and uh, built it and developed it. And again, some people on the, uh, on, on the side that decided to, um, to demonize colonialism as, as this horrible, dreadful evil, um, uh, you know, speak of, of it as a bad time. My own experience, I obviously wasn't there during the colonial period, but when I have been in Nairobi, uh, I've spoken to, to people just talking to citizens, and it's been many years. I've not, I've not been there for decades, but when I was last there, I'd run into people who spoke very nostalgically about the time the British were there. And what they said was the post office worked, the trains worked, the hospitals worked, you could get medicine. Yes, there was no independence, right. It was a British colony. For the ordinary Joe in the street, they didn't really care about who whose colony it was. They knew that if it became independent, life would deteriorate for them, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, there were a few Africans at the top of the heap. Um, Kenneth Conder was, was one of them, and there were, there were a number of others who had received an education in Britain, and they knew how to work the governmental game, and they emerged as the, the, the kings and rulers of Kenya in many ways far less benevolent than the British had been while they were there. That's just another view of the colonial period that you're unlikely to hear on any American university campus. Anyway, uh, the reason I tell you all of that is to tell you that there is a vast Chinese company, and like all companies in China, or most of them, basically an arm of the Chinese Communist government, and it's called the China Road and Bridge Corporation. If it is not the largest engineering firm in the world, it's pretty close to that. And uh, the list of the huge bridges, roads, and railways that they have constructed um, you know, would would fill uh, a small file folder. It's it's a huge company. Anyways, turns out that uh, they've got an interesting uh, strategy they use. And those of you who've been listening for a few years will know that uh, uh, during the time of the 2016 election period, not only was I an enthusiastic supporter of uh, Trump, but I also repeatedly emphasized that I did not feel that Russia was the big enemy. And after the election was over, I, I believed then, and I continue to believe now, that the entire legend of Russian involvement in our uh, in our election was something that was created by Camp Clinton on uh, the morning of November 9th, when they knew they had a scramble in order to come up with an explanation for why Hillary lost. I do believe that, and 
If the show was about that, I would tell you the, the many reasons I have for believing that. However, I did emphasize then that I saw absolutely no reason for us to demonize Russia. Uh, I don't believe America's business is to measure the morality of other nations. Uh, our business is to act in the interests of the United States of America. If Saudi Arabia murders its own journalist um, and it didn't happen on American territory, my position is it's none of our business. It's not our job to turn the whole world into Judeo-Christian, Western civilization, morality-adhering people. It would be nice if that happened, but I'm not willing to take hard-earned money from American taxpayers in order to bring about these uh, utopian dreams that were a part of why we went to war in Iraq. Oh, we're going to bring democracy to Iraq. All of this was nonsense, and uh, the notion that we must punish Saudi Arabia because they murdered their own journalist. Look, if you're going to take that position, then there are literally very few countries in the world you should talk to. You're going to talk to Turkey after the genocide they perpetrated against the Armenians in the first part of the 20th century. Uh, you're going to talk to Rwanda uh, after what the Hutus did to the Tutsis. Um, you're going to talk to the folks in the Sudan. And not only that, but all the other instances of assassinations and murders perpetrated by all the, virtually all the countries. The idea of descending on Saudi Arabia, I believe, was primarily intended to embarrass uh, President Trump more than anything else. Uh, I, I think he's taken exactly the right track that we do not spend money on trying to civilize other nations other than what is necessary for our own security. But um, in, uh, in this case, yeah, I just don't think that that played any role whatsoever. So uh, uh, no reason to demonize Russia. I felt there was every reason to form an alliance with Russia. Uh, if Russia could keep their seaport in Syria, that's really pretty much all they care about in the Middle East situation. Um, you know, President Obama was plain dead, dishonest and wrong. I mean, everything he touched in that area, the so-called Arab Spring, Libya and Gaddafi, the, um, the uh, Assad situation, almost everything the man touched was a calamity. Uh, because he did have no overall concept at all of what America's relationship is to other countries, and for a variety of other reasons as well, I should tell you. But for the moment, at any rate, uh, China. Now there, I've always felt, is a very, very serious problem. And uh, ignoring it and myopically focusing on Russia is is something for which I think uh, the country in the future uh, another generation perhaps will have to pay the price. God help us. I hope it's not a bad one. But um, but the expansionism, the aggression, the the all of all of the dangerous tendencies uh, that were constantly being as ascribed to Putin and Russia, illusion. But where it's really happening is China. Now. I think everybody knows that one of the uh, areas of enormous concern to, to me, but it should be to everybody, is uh, um, valuable mineral availability. 
uh, there are special minerals, including lithium, by the way, and I don't have to tell you the role that lithium plays in electronics today. All you have to do is take a look at the specifications on your phone and you will discover how valuable lithium is. Uh, China has been closing in on monopolizing basically the world's supply of lithium plus a whole other supply of crucial metals. There are metals that have to do with very strong magnets. China is monopolizing successfully the uh, availability of all those things as well. Okay, what has this got to do with Mombasa and Africa? Um, I'll tell you that in just a moment. But first of all, I want to make sure that I don't neglect the commercial side of things, whereby I bring you things of value to you and you pay money to me. That's the way it works. This way we both emerge happier from the transaction and uh, I am thereby motivated to continue producing more and more resources that can improve the quality of your life. Uh, the, the resource I draw your attention to in this instance is called Madam I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Please take a look at them at the website. Go to rabbidaniellappin.com, www.rabbidaniellappin.com, and go to the store section. Have a look and read up about uh, Madam I'm Adam, Decoding the Marriage Secrets from Eden, and see if this is something that you and your beloved need to listen to or whether people in your orbit, friends or family, who are either about to get into a dating and, and matrimonial relationship or need help, uh, anybody should be able to benefit from that program. Madam, I'm Adam, decoding marriage secrets from Eden. RabbiDanielLappin.com is the place to go. And... Uh, at the, the same time, while you're there, make sure you're uh, receiving our weekly emails. Uh, check out Thought Tools, Susan's Musings. Uh, you'll love the, the most recent Ask the Rabbi, by the way. This is about a guy who, uh, who um, divorced eight, 10 years ago, remarried 8 years ago, and is now uh, obsessively focused on communicating with his former first wife and uh, he, he this he wants to write to her he want, anyway he asks whether that's a good idea and in our response to him uh, we came down so heavily on him that several of the comments which you can read there at rabbidaniellappin.com uh, took issue with us. One woman in particular said, you know, men have feelings as well. You shouldn't have uh, told him to be to act like a man. Well, we did tell him to act like a man. Why we did that, you'll be able to read over there at rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, so how does your rabbi believe that China is executing a 21st century model of colonization. And uh, to whatever extent, uh, Britain, Portugal, Germany, Belgium, Italy uh, managed to benefit and gain from the colonies they raised and developed elsewhere in the world. Well, to that extent, uh, China is doing the same thing. It's a brilliant strategy. How does it work? Well, 
I, I may be a little bit ahead of the curve in suggesting this as a deliberate strategy, but I think it is. And I think that if you keep your eyes open for this kind of trend over the next few years, I think you will see that you were forewarned of what exactly is going on. Let me tell you, first of all, uh, what happened in Zambia. Uh, China, through the well-known China Road Bridge Corporation, came to Zambia and they said, hey, you guys, you know, you, you are owners of the world's largest copper reserves. I know you don't have money, you don't have Chinese currency, you don't have American currency, but you guys don't have a proper airport. Your airport is an, a mess. It's ancient, it doesn't work. You need a new international airport. And secondly, while you have this beautiful dam called the Kariba Dam, and it is a huge uh, potential hydroelectric project, um, it's been neglected since it was built back in the 1960s. Uh, it's been neglected. Silt and mud have accumulated. Most of the generators are not running. Tell you what, we, the China Bridge Road and Bridge Corporation, we will come in, we'll build you an airport, we'll build you, we'll fix up your uh, electricity generation, and we will build you out an electric grid around the whole country. And uh, you will pay us back with copper. That's all. And um, that's how China secured its supply of copper. But they wrote in quite stringent uh, repayment terms in the contract. All this that I'm telling you now is this part is all fact. Uh, my conjecture extends only to the observation that this is a deliberate strategy. I am aware of it played out, playing out in two countries. It may be others. I have not researched the other countries yet, but uh, I will leave that for the interested among you to pursue and report back to me so I can notify everybody. Uh, so what happens? They write very stringent contracts with Zambia. And uh, the uh, repayment terms and times are very specific. And the penalty is the surrender of the very facilities that the Chinese Road and Bridge Corporation built in the first place. Also built into the contract was that any arbitration or legal disputes have to be resolved in China under Chinese law. <laughs> well, I think you, you see where this is going. Well, not surprisingly, um, because of the terms of the contract and the loan to, to, uh, to build this infrastructure, there was absolutely no way Zambia was going to be able to keep to the terms of the repayment. And they didn't. They defaulted. And so even as I'm speaking to you, the International Airport of Zambia is passing into Chinese control. And the electrical grid, the whole electrical system of Zambia, yeah, that's right, you got it, passing into Chinese control. Um, a great deal of the valuable material, such as copper and other uh, metals needed by China, are available in Zambia. China 
is doing brilliantly. Now let's go back to Kenya, Mombasa. Well, the port in Mombasa has enormous potential, but it's run down. It's old. It's more than 100 years old, and it looks it. It also functions that way. And meanwhile, the old narrow-gauge railway between Mombasa and Nairobi was completely inappropriate for 20th century conditions, late 20th century conditions. Impossible. Well, once again, our friendly Chinese, in the form of the China Road and Bridge Corporation, stopped in at Kenya, and they said, hey, you guys, we'll do your port. We'll totally rebuild your harbor so it can handle anything and everything. And the Kenyans said, well, a fat lot of good that'll do us. The goods will pile up on the dock because we have no way of getting them to the main industrial and commercial part of the country in the highlands, namely the areas around Nairobi. And the Chinese said, ah, you mean because of that hundred-year-old British-built narrow-gauge railway? And they said, yeah, that's the problem. Chinese China Road and Bridge Corporation said, no problem at all. We'll build you a brand new spanking efficient standard gauge railway from Mombasa to Nairobi. And the Kenyans said, really? And they said, sure. And once again, they set up a contract uh, that would be adjudicated or, uh, or arbitrated in China under Chinese law. And they again set terms that simply were not going to be paid. The Kenyans said, well, you know, when we, we, we're going to make money on, uh, on cargo fees on the railway and we're going to make money on ships using the port, we'll be able to pay the Chinese for all their work. Well, as it turns out, that was not to be. And so at the time of my recording this show, China is in the process of acquiring the port of Mombasa and acquiring the standard gauge railroad from uh, Mombasa to Nairobi. Uh, Once again, Kenya is home to many natural resources, and once again, China is brilliantly looking to the future, while America bleats about democracy and human rights violations. uh, China is building for a dominant 21st century America, not so much. Let me tell you something else about Africa, if I may. I was born there, and I grew up there until my parents sent me away to school in England for good and sufficient reason, I can tell you, because uh, I was uh, turning into a barefoot savage. And and then after that, uh, I did go back and spent... Uh, a few years in South Africa before I left for the United States. During that time, I got a chance to see a few things. Now, I will tell you, I've not been back since I immigrated to the United States of America. um, I have not been back to Africa at all. However, all indications are that, God willing, this is likely to change. I have become an enormous enthusiast of things that are happening in much of Africa at the moment. I'm very hopeful. And to put it bluntly, I think Africa is moving in the right direction 
while America is moving in the wrong direction. What do I mean? Well, I'll explain that uh, more fully. But for now, let it be said that back then, while I was still in Africa, there were certain characteristics that identified the continent as part of the third world, if not the very capital of the third world. What were these characteristics? Well, um, a poorly functioning economy, corruption, a lot of poverty, no clean water to drink. I mean, notoriously, uh, in many parts of Africa, villagers particularly had to walk miles uh, to get fresh water, and even then it, it, it wasn't pasteurized or clean. One of the parasites found in uh, water in South Africa is called bilharzia, which is a frightful and horrible thing, and uh, people in Africa were suffering from that. Uh, the main form of transport in Africa was bicycles. Uh, corruption was widespread. People lived uh, in the way that uh, homeless people in America lived. They lived in shanty towns. Uh, the, the continent was rife with tribalism. This group of people were in one tribe. That group of people were in another tribe. This tribe didn't like that tribe. This tribe was trying to get benefits at the expense of that tribe. Uh, this tribe was crying victim. Um, another sign of Africa being the third world was the state of public hygiene. I mean, you, you could walk around even in cities and uh, there would be uh, human excrement all over the place, let alone animal excrement. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was filthy, absolutely filthy. And um, uh, finally there was um, uncontrolled and unrestrained prosecutorial malice. Uh, it was a sign of the third world that if you got on the wrong side of anybody powerful in Africa, the next thing would happen is you would be prosecuted for something. And it was completely irrelevant as to whether you'd actually done anything wrong or not because you would be utterly ruined by the lengthy and hopeless, futile prospect of defending yourself. The and as soon as you made progress in one area, the prosecution would just throw another charge at you on top of the one before. My friends, a lot of these things have improved in Africa, but I'll tell you where they are deteriorating, and you will be shocked to hear. There's one place in the world where all of these things, which I highlighted as the conspicuous marks of third worldism in Africa, well, they're all improving. But there's one place that's getting a whole lot worse on every one of these metrics, and I'll tell you about it. But uh, first of all, again, and you probably know this by now, I'm not trying to irritate you. I know many of you are saying, oh, I know what he's going to say now, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. But uh, I am still surprised that every now and then I get comments or letters from people who listen to this show and have no idea of my website. They ask me information which is available on the website. This happens on Facebook. It happens on Twitter. It happens on YouTube. And it's, 
I don't get it. How is it possible that you listen to this show and you do not know that my website is www.rabbidaniellappin.com? How can you not know that? At any rate, uh, the resource I draw your attention to today is a, a two-hour audio program with study guide on male-female relationships. It's called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. And uh, it's a must-hear for anybody who wants to be in a good relationship with somebody of the opposite gender and anybody who wants to be in a better relationship, uh, you definitely need to hear this. At any rate, at the very least, you should read more about it, and you will find that for a very reasonable investment, this program can become yours and uh, available to those in your orbit of influence. It's called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden, and uh, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. By the way, the website has on it frequently asked questions, FAQs, and uh, I constantly am asked these questions by people listening to the show. My dear friends, I love hearing from you. I even answer many of you, but when you ask me a question that is answered on my website, I will not answer. It's unreasonable. I'm very busy, as I know you are too. Let's not waste each other's time. If you want to know the answer to many of your standard questions, just go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay? All right, let's proceed as I delve more deeply into where the real third world is today. Okay. Onwards we go, you noble and happy warriors. It was back in 1979 that the uh, talented movie maker Francis Ford Coppola uh, did a movie called Apocalypse Now. I've never seen it. Uh, I can't tell you a whole lot about it other than the fact that it was based on a novel by a wonderful English writer uh, called Joseph Conrad. Now, when I say he's an English novelist, that is true, but he was actually a Pole. Uh, His native language was Polish, and he came to England, not only learned to speak English, but learned to write in English and wrote some fantastic books. One of them Uh, which is just amazingly readable. And again, I'm I'm cautious about recommending books because there are many great books that are not suitable for everybody. And uh, there are many other books that may not rank up there as, as great novels in my view, but would make wonderful reading for many people. So and so, at any rate, my view is to be aware of Joseph Conrad. Uh, I found his book, All Meyer's Folly, uh, to be um, one of the most poignant and, and difficult-to-read books emotionally um, that I can ever remember reading, um, about a, a guy who had dreams for his daughter, and um, he was an expat from Europe living in, in some isolated place, hoping to make his fortune. 
Anyway, that was Allmeyer's folly. But Joseph Conrad wrote a book called Heart of Darkness. And as I say, that became the basis of Francis Ford Coppola's movie uh, Apocalypse Now. Heart of Darkness was written um, about uh, 1900, just about the turn of the century. As it turns out, 80 years before (laughs) Francis Ford Coppola made it into a movie. Heart of Darkness is set in the Congo, right? That huge part of Central Africa. And um, it was uh, partially Belgium. It was partially French. Uh, It was European colonial. Now, I'll tell you a general rule, and that is that England left its colonies in far, far better condition than Germany, Italy, Portugal, France, and Belgium did. Um, The Congo was a mess. I mean, compared to Nigeria, compared to Ghana, compared to Kenya, uh, it was a complete mess. Um, okay, I'm as you, <laughs> I'm I'm somewhat into Africa, and I, as I said, I'm very much hoping to be going to speak there uh, this year in a number of countries, and uh, I look forward to it very much. One of the reasons I look forward to it is because Africa, my friends, is moving in the right direction, and. Um, the Congo, while not the same as, as Kenya or Ghana or even Nigeria, the Congo is also struggling. Uh, it went through all kinds of turbulence in the early 60s when it broke away from the European uh, colonial powers. And um, uh, it ended up eventually, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but it ended up, um, the northern section ended up the... Um, Republic of the Congo, and its main city is Kinshasa, and and excuse me, is Brazzaville, and it has a port on the Atlantic Ocean. The, the The southeastern portion became the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Very easy to confuse the two. They are separated by the Congo River, which is a huge river and navigable for a long, long way. And in fact, uh, for a long time, most of the transport in the Congo Uh, was by water. There were canals and rivers and tributaries and waterways, everything built, and lakes, huge lakes, everything built around, everything uh, existing around this huge river called the Congo River. And uh, uh, Heart of Darkness um, is uh, about a uh, a guy in the the Congo, and... um, Anyway, his name is Kurtz, and it's uh, he, he has a trading post in the Congo. Uh, you know, for anybody interested in good writing and for anybody interested in Africa, it's it's fascinating. Anyways, um, why am I telling you all this? Because the southeastern portion, the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo, um, again, on the other bank of the Congo River, um, just had elections. And and here's the good thing. Was there cheating and uh, was there um, uh, dishonesty in the elections? No question about it. However, everybody's admitting that and everybody is committed to repairing it. And guess who is the most respected institution in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? The Catholic Church. That's right. And the Catholic Church is looked to 
to fix up the election process and to declare the winner, and the Catholic Church is accepting that task and that obligation, it's very hopeful because I know another country which in 2016 in November had elections with enormous dishonesty, a huge amount of cheating, a lot of fraudulent voting, and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's trying to fix it. Nobody's acknowledging that it happened. So I ask you, which is the third world country and which is the country moving in the right direction, moving towards the first world? I think it's pretty clear that the Democratic Republic, Republic of the Congo is heading towards the first world status. And the United States of America at the moment, it, you know, is, is pointed in the, the third world direction looking at elections as a as a metric. Now, I was in the Congo uh, in the um, very early 1960s. The, the problems had already begun, and um, the reason I was there was uh, I was being sent to Bible school in Israel by my parents, and I was flying on South African Airways, um, a DC-7, if you must know, uh, which is a four-engine propeller plane, uh, very noisy, vibration, uh, bumpy, and um, lengthy, slow. Uh, anyways, it couldn't do the whole journey uh, from um, South Africa to Israel nonstop, and so we stopped in uh, in the Belgian Cong in the Congo, and I believe we stopped in. I think it was. I'm really sorry. I can't remember. It was Brazzaville, which is today um, the uh, the Democrat, the the Republic of the Congo. Whether we stopped in Kinshasa, I don't quite remember. Um, but uh, it was one of those places. I'll tell you two things I remember very clearly. I mean, I was pretty young. Two things I remember very clearly. One of them was that there were a lot of guys with big guns around. There were machine guns. A lot of soldiers with machine guns. Number two. I remember seeing people using the main uh, arrival area, the, this big, beautiful lobby that had been built by the Belgians, and they were using it as a public toilet. So when we got off the plane to go and sit inside the, the lounge while they refueled the plane, we, we were shepherded by extremely hostile-looking guys with big guns, and we sat in a, um, uh, in a room in which people were relieving themselves in every way, uh, in every place. Um, I've never forgotten that. And that is because Africa used to be a third world place. Now, uh, I will tell you, talking again about the China Road and Bridge Corporation, they've also just finished a huge project, a massive road and the longest bridge in this part of Africa, I, I don't even know where in Africa there might be a longer bridge, to tell you the truth, but it's a, a bridge, the Brazzaville Viaduct, and uh, again, the China Road and Bridge Corporation built this for the Republic of the Congo, and um, are they going to be taking that over as well? At the moment, I'm not hearing that, but obviously, I would not be surprised. Uh, because once again, it seems the China Road and Bridge Corporation's model is to uh, make magnanimous offers with uh, loans of the money to cover the construction, 
and then in due course to take over the assets, um, either the constructed assets or others. In the case of the Republic of the Congo, I dare say what the Chinese would like to take over are uh, various uh, mineral resources and uh, mines. Many of the minerals that China needs and wants are uh, found in the Congo, and it's very likely that uh, China... um, completely and brilliantly defeats the United States in the race for African resources, whether it's Kenya or Zambia or uh, Republic of the Congo or many other places, by the way, that I could tell you about. China is well ensconced. Uh, The local governments are indebted to China. And uh, whatever happens, China's supply of strategic minerals is very, very safe indeed. Uh, The same, unfortunately, cannot be said for us. Uh, I'm afraid the locusts ate the years, the Obama years, uh, the George W. Bush years. Um, Yeah, the locusts ate those years, and uh, I I look in hope to President Trump to see the reality of these things. Like I told you, from May 2016 all the way to the elections, um, I told you, um, you know, I'm not addressing his, uh, his, his character. I'm not addressing his morality. I'm, all I'm addressing is the fact that he will operate as the chief executive with the idea of how a, an astute businessman would do things. And that's all one could hope for. And I think that is precisely uh, how he has delivered. At any rate, um, that is in indeed where things stood with the Congo. And the interesting thing, as I say, is that back then, when I was there in um, 61, I believe it was, and it was filthy, and there were no elections, and people who... Uh, Various dictators arose to subjugate the country after the colonial uh, powers left, leaving the locals far, far worse off than they had ever been under uh, Belgium or French rule. But uh, uh, off they went. The 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 uh, the tyrants and the dictators arose. Filth spread. Elections were unknown. Uh, there was there was no transport. There was uh, no housing. There was tribalism. It was it was the third world. There's no question about it. But now, when you visit the countries I've spoken about, Ghana, Nigeria, the Christian part of Nigeria, the the Islamic part of Nigeria remains very problematic. Uh, both Congos, uh, Kenya. Uh, Zimbabwe is a huge problem, Zambia um, and South Africa looks as if it could still be a huge problem, so the jury is still out. But looking at these countries, um, it's amazing because they're clean, they have motor cars. Today, the population is not all dependent on bikes anymore. The corruption is certainly there, but it's acknowledged and being grappled with. They're, they're dealing with it. Um, cities are being built. Roads are being built. There's infrastructure. Uh, public hygiene is a reality. Um, and some measure 
of the freedoms of Western democracy are becoming widely known. In a place like Ghana, it's, it's extensive. So it's worth bearing in mind that uh, all of these countries I've been talking about, plus many more I'm not addressing, are moving in the right direction. They are going from what used to be third world status towards first world status. They're, they're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing in order to create a first world nation. They're moving in the right direction. I can't, I can't wait to go back. I haven't been back to Africa for decades and decades. So um, I'm very much looking forward to working out the details of being able to visit um, the, uh, the continent this, this coming year, as I said. Uh, but how's about the United States of America? Are we also continuing to move in the right direction? I think not. What do you mean? Well, I think that America is moving in the direction from a one-time first world nation towards third world status. What? The United States of America, third, third world status? What are you talking about? Hey, don't rely on me. I'm only your rabbi. You can rely on the New York Times, which uh, a few years ago actually had an article identifying Los Angeles as one of the largest cities of the third world world. That's right. I'll explain what I mean. But first of all, one more reminder that you want to go to our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Yes, you might want to read the frequently asked questions so that uh, you don't have to write to ask me these things. You might want to uh, read some of the last um, episodes of Thought Tools or Susan's Musings. Uh, or Ask the Rabbi, which which is really a lot of fun. And uh, you might want to also take a look, read up about a uh, two-hour audio study program called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Look, uh, there are two children's stories that are told out there, right? There's Aladdin and there's Cinderella. In Cinderella, the common lowly born girl marries the prince and becomes the queen in aladdin the common lowly born boy marries the princess which one is more realistic which one do we find happening more often in real life well one way of looking at it is that um well the uh, uh the business executive traveling first class, often, I know so many of these stories from both sides, often used to end up marrying an, a beautiful airline stewardess he met on a flight. It did happen back in the days when airline stewardesses were all beautiful uh, on American domestic carriers. Uh, by the way, in, in uh, an older episode, you remember a few months ago I did an episode uh, entitled Men Do Not Propose to Her Until You Listen to This Show. And uh, I spoke a lot about, uh, one of the things I mentioned was this very point, and I, I spoke about um, a beautiful uh, stewardesses, and somebody listening to the show, you know, and you can listen to the show on a lot of different platforms, somebody listening on uh, YouTube actually wrote a comment, which I haven't responded to yet, but I will, saying, 
uh, how disappointed and saddened she was to hear me as a married man speak about beautiful stewardesses. So I, I don't actually know if she was bothered that I noticed or bothered that I acknowledged it or bothered that I thought they were beautiful, but whatever it is, uh, it's, uh, I love hearing from people and I love the opportunity to correct misapprehensions such as that one. But at any rate, if you've ever wondered why it is that, yes, um, successful upper-end businessmen often married penniless stewardesses working on their flight. It used to happen. How often do you think it used to happen? And admittedly, there were fewer female executives, but they existed. How often do you think a, uh, a wealthy female single traveling on an airplane ended up dating her male steward? It doesn't happen. Princesses do not marry peasants. But princes often marry peasant girls. Why? Well, I thought you'd probably want to know. And uh, in Ma uh, Madam I'm Adam Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden, you will hear the clue to that conundrum as well as many, many others. So don't hesitate. Head over to www.rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay? Go on. You know you want to. All right, fine, maybe you don't, but you know I want you to. Okay, so now it falls upon your rabbi, not only the burden of being a sane man in a demented age, but also the burden, the sad burden, of explaining why it is that while most of Africa is on track moving from the first world to from the third world to the first world uh, to modern development status America the United States of America is sadly moving from first world status to third world status how do i say that why do i say that well Let's revisit the metrics that I've uh, alluded to, those things which enable the visitor to a country to quickly determine whether they are in a third world country or a first world country. In no particular order, let's take a look at uh, the first. The first one is water. Now, when you want to take a shower in Africa, in most places in Africa, you go into a nice hotel and you take a shower. You get as much water as you want. Huge volumes of hot water cascade over you. My goodness, you can even have that happen in little countries like Switzerland or Liechtenstein in Europe. Um, but in America? Now, in America, we all have low-flow nozzles. You go into an American hotel even hotels that I, I don't patronize, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an enthusiast of, of the Ritz-Carlton, but it's obviously a very fine hotel chain. Um, I just, I just, myself, I just find it bothersome to have people hovering all the time, uh, asking you, for, you know, if they can do things for you or direct your place. It's just too much. Um, but on the one or two occasions where I have been housed there by organizations for whom I've been speaking, uh, I must tell you, you, I know how much they paid for my room, 
and it's not worth it. You want to take a shower, and the water dribbles out. It's a low-flow nozzle, right? Because there's a water shortage, especially in California. Everybody knows that. You flush a toilet in an American hotel, and very often you need to flush two or three times. You'll pardon me. But that's just because it's low-flow toilets. When you want to flush a toilet, in I mean, anywhere in the world that, that I've been lately, um, Israel, um, Switzerland, Great Britain, you flush. It flushes. It's not a problem. America has a water problem. It shouldn't, but it does. Now, you'll remember that there was a time when ministries around the world, James Robeson's Life Today and many other ministries, raise money to uh, build water supplies for African villages. And it's very commendable, it's very beautiful, it's very lovely. But I really want to suggest that some of these ministries now start trying to solve America's water problem because we're becoming a third world nation. It's like water is is a, is a major issue. It's absurd. It shouldn't be. But a socialist-leaning government has created shortage where none needs to exist. Bottom line, looking at the results, the result is that you want water, America's moving towards the third world. Looking at our water situation, hello, third world, here we come. By, by the way, I, I mentioned the New York Times uh, running an article on Los Angeles of the third world, and and they did, in fact. The article was entitled, How Los Angeles is Becoming a Third World City, published in July 2015. And it was written by, I, th- I think, an immigrant from Guatemala, and a guy called Hector Tobar. But at any rate, he makes the case very persuasively that, uh, now, when you go to Los Angeles, it's very possible that you hang out at the beach and at Disneyland and Universal Studios and Beverly Hills, and you say, what is Rabbi Daniel Lappin talking about? This is a modern, up-to-date city with everything you could possibly want. Have you been to Rodeo Drive? Yeah, look, um, Los Angeles is a big place. And uh, you probably may not even be aware that there's a whole section of Los Angeles called Little Bangladesh. (laughs) And um, you may not be aware that, and again, I don't know that these numbers are reliable, but the United States Census uh, listed over 25,000 homeless people in the city living in tents and living in um, in uh, shacks and shanty towns and under uh, tarpaulins and so on. And they look just like small villages in Africa used to look in the 1960s. And, uh, you, you know, you've got to be aware. That's what it, what it's like. Uh, and that's another distinction between the first world and the third world. The first world um, has housing. The third world has lots and lots of people living in shanty towns. Under its new leadership, even Brazil is cleaning up that part of it and moving back towards the first world. But in the United States of America, we not only tolerate homeless encampments, but um, we accommodate to them and we raise money to help them. Look, um, I'm not going to take the time now to discuss homelessness. Suffice it to say that um, in a country 
where in almost any state of the union, anybody can apply for and get with minimal, minimal obstacles, uh, very few hoops to jump through, you can get a lot of money, a lot of money for free from your fellow citizens in welfare payments, in uh, food stamps, in, in Section 8 housing, um, all free uh, cell phones, all kinds of things you can get. There is absolutely no reason for anybody to be homeless other than by choice. Well, we're, we're tolerating it. We're allowing the emergence of an entire demographic, a whole, and I'm going to, apropos of this whole conversation, I'm going to call it a tribe, a whole tribe of the homeless, which enables an entire bureaucracy to grow, to serve that particular tribe. Every single sign of third worldism in the United States of America. Here's another one. Um, cities like Seattle and New York and San Francisco, a number of other cities, particularly democratically controlled left-leaning cities, um, played havoc with traffic by creating bike lanes. It's now being recognized to be a disaster. Seattle has publicly acknowledged that the number of people who ride bicycles, who commute bikes to work, has dropped continuously since they began building bike lanes on all the major highways. And it's now insignificant. A trivial number of people bike. And the number of accidents involving cars and bikes has, has risen to unacceptable levels. And basically, they're getting ready to call it quits. New York wrecked traffic through Midtown because of bike lanes. Again, a disaster. San Francisco, a disaster. For years and years and years, the left has been pushing bikes. And so while Africa has been working to get people out of bicycles into cars, America has been working on getting people out of cars and into bicycles. How dumb do you have to be? I mean, you really are going to tell me that uh, I'm going to put on a suit or, or clean clothing in the morning to go to work, and then I'm going to ride a bicycle to work, and I'm going to need to take a shower when I get to work. My clothing is going to be messed up, even if it doesn't rain. There are puddles, cars go by and throw up dirt, and I arrive at work in a mess, and I'm hot and tired. I'm really going to do that? Yeah, while it was a novel idea for a little while, very cool cutting-edge people, of which I'm not one, um, thought, oh, yeah, we, we got to do this. Yeah, this is a really good idea. Let's ride a bike to work. Uh, had they listened to their rabbi, they would have heard that that was a really dumb idea. Bikes should be used for recreation, not for main transport. Anybody who's trying to leave the third world knows that. But America is moving back towards the third world. And so bikes are still being pushed at by mayors of progressive cities around the country. Bicycles are the way to go. No, they really aren't. Cars are the way to go. And your job in government is to make sure that traffic flows, not to do what you have been doing. This is well known, by the way, uh, causing such an awful mess of traffic flow so as to force people into light rail bicycles and buses um corruption all right corruption is a huge problem all right there's there's so much i mean really john boehner leaves politics and becomes a lobbyist 
for the marijuana industry. Really? Is this what government is meant to be? Is this what Madison figured? Did George Washington say, as soon as I am no longer the first president, I'm going to capitalize on my relationships and my connections? Friends, this is called corruption. We not only do it, we accept it, we regard it as normal, and the lobbying industry is just part of that, employing former uh, lawmakers. So much so that there is so much cynicism that I was actually told by a lawmaker friend of mine that many people go into Congress with the explicit purpose of staying long enough to learn their way around, to get to know people, to get to know how all the bureaucracies work, and then to go out into the lobbying industry and make money. This is called corruption. Now, if you try that in Kenya or Nigeria or Ghana or Zambia, uh, you'll get into trouble. They don't let you do that because they are trying to stamp out corruption. Do they still have corruption? Of course they do, but they're moving in the right direction. We're not! Tribalism. Back in the day when I motorcycled through Africa, 1969 it was, and uh, I was an official envoy of the African Road Federation. It's another another story. But um, what I encountered were tribes, one tribe after another. And I'd come out of the territory of one tribe into the territory of another tribe. Everything was tribal. Uh, the, the huge genocide where a million uh, Tutsis were massacred by the Hutus, um, those are not rotary clubs, my friends. Those are tribes. The Hutus is a tribe. The Tutsis are a tribe. And back in the day, Africa's huge problem was tribalism. Africa's huge problem was that the colonial powers, notably England, had carved borders without paying attention to tribal ownership. Okay, not, a, not a new story. And uh, today you go to Africa and um, people are, are, for the most part, dressed in Western dress. Not all the time, not everybody. But uh, and no longer do they talk about what tribe you're in. If you ask, they'll tell you. But it's no longer of importance. People say, I'm a Ghanaian. They don't speak about which tribe. There were several tribes that, that lived in Ghana. And people still know their family and tribal connections. But they marry cross-tribally. And little by little, the tribes are becoming less and less important because Africa is moving from the third world towards the first world. You do not want tribalism in a first world society. But in the United States of America, tribalism is growing more and more. You have many different tribes here. You have women tribes. You have uh, black tribe, the black people's tribe. You have the white people's tribe. You have uh, the students' tribe. You have the trade unions' tribes. And many, many others that you can name as well. And they're all at war with one another, just the way it used to be in the third world. Third world, they used to hurl spears at one another. I started off telling you about this movie, um, Beyond Mombasa. And you'll see African tribes throwing spears at each other. <laughs> doesn't happen in Africa anymore. But it does happen in America. They're not throwing spears at each other. 
They're throwing barbs at each other. They are uh, just as certainly trying to destroy one another. The attempts by several of the tribes to destroy uh, Justice Kavanaugh and his tribe, yeah, well known. Um, you have the, the tribe of people who will do anything necessary to promote abortion. Right? Planned Parenthood is part of the uh, witch doctor and chief of that tribe. Uh, you've got other tribe, another tribe that's pro-life. America is full of tribes. And not only don't they talk to each other, they hate each other. That's exactly how it used to be in the old days in Africa. But Africa's moving away from tribalism. America is moving towards tribalism. Public hygiene. My friends, as I told you, in Africa, when I was a kid, Africa was a pretty filthy, smelly place. But it isn't anymore. Not like that anymore. Because public hygiene is taken very seriously. In America, politics, which is tribalism, is more important than public health. So the Center for Disease Control handles diseases all the way going back to AIDS, going to Ebola. All of these are handled from a political perspective because there are certain tribes you may not insult. The tribe of homosexuals is one of the tribes you may absolutely never insult. And so uh, public hygiene down the tubes. Today in cities, and there are many cities like San Francisco, where you will find feces in the street, excrement in the street. You will find used syringes. You can even today, you may remember Starbucks brilliantly opened up their bathrooms to everybody. Well, good luck trying to find a Starbucks bathroom that you feel comfortable using these days, because in many cities... Uh, Starbucks bathrooms are now places where you will find blood-spattered syringes, drug paraphernalia, uh, disgusting uh, material all over the floor. There is no way. I I always used to admire how Starbucks staff meticulously kept their bathrooms clean. Today, they can't do it anymore. It would require a commercial cleaning service to do the same thing. Why? Well, because there are tribes in America And in order not to offend any tribes, public hygiene has been thrown out the window. Um, Homeless, another one of the tribes, right? They're allowed to urinate in the street in public. Now, you better not try it because you'll get arrested. But uh, that particular tribe has rights that you do not have. Um, another, uh, Another aspect of the third world, prosecutorial malice. Um. Oliver Schmidt uh, was an executive of Volkswagen, sentenced to seven years in jail. Why? Because the company, and this is, again, it's, it's a big, long story. I can't go into it at length here. Suffice it to say that um, the entire war on automobiles, the entire war on gasoline-driven automobiles uh, has taken quite a lot of collateral damage. It has inflicted quite a lot of collateral damage. Uh, bottom line is that it used to be that a um, a corporation had a veil that shielded the people inside it. Now, you could impose huge fines, draconian fines. Uh, you could impose all kinds of sanctions against a corporation. You could even destroy a corporation. 
but it was understood that the people within the corporation were acting on behalf of the corporation. And so for that reason, and I know that the instinctive response to what I'm saying is, oh, this is terrible. Corporations let people get away with murder. Well, it's about time we prosecuted them. Look, um, when things go to excess in any direction, it's problematic. And uh, be aware that this new trend of jailing corporate executives uh, is going to come home to roost. It's going to hurt uh, your ability to feed your family down the road, not far down the road soon. Uh, because one of the, the tribes in America that has almost unlimited power is the tribe of prosecutors, both state prosecutors and federal, pro the whole tribe of prosecutors are immensely powerful. And um, it really is up to them to what extent anybody is going to be uh, persecuted and prosecuted. In many cases, many of them do a fine job. They're people of uh, upright bearing who are have a, a watchful eye out for crime. But unfortunately, that's not everybody. There are prosecutors, and I think everybody remembers the Duke Lacrosse case, where one of the prosecutors was finally, finally, after a lot of outrage, was finally thrown out um, because he decided to placate the black tribe and uh, prosecute members of the white tribe for no legal reasons, just because this was tribal warfare. And so uh, this used to be a feature in Africa, uh, prosecutors were notorious. They were they were political agents. Uh, but today in Africa, there's been enormous awareness of the problem, and there has been enormous effort to return to normal rule of law. Africa moving in the right direction towards the first world, America progressing further down the dark road to the third world as a result of uh, prosecutorial power and malice and um, suppression of speech. Again, it used to be that uh, in most of Africa, you couldn't talk freely. If you said anything that, uh, that insulted uh, powerful figures, you were in very serious trouble. Well, that's no longer the case. Enormous effort has been made uh, as I, I alluded to, the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo having just recently had elections, and uh, people who stood against the ruling force uh, were very vocal. The Catholic Church is vocal. Today, in the Congo, you can speak your mind. There is no suppression of speech as there used to be, certainly a lot less. But America is moving in the wrong direction. You may call it political correctness. You can call it whatever you like. But the direction we're moving in is the suppression of free speech, particularly in our uh, institutional uh, cultural memories, our, the tribe of, pub, of education. In our tribe of educators, professors, bureaucrats, uh, administrators, college uh, presidents, in that world, suppression of speech is at third world levels. It really is. And so um, we're, we're forced to end on, on a slightly sad note. Look, um, I'm optimistic. 
um, I think that um, in another, given a, a, you know, finish another half this term, given one more term, uh, I'm somewhat hopeful that uh, that the country is moving, at least it's not moving in the right direction yet, make no mistake about it. We are moving in the direction of the third world, there's no mistake. But the speed is less. You know, when an airplane goes into a dive, that is a bad situation, right? Because it is heading towards a, a collision with the earth. And so as it's descending and picking up speed, going faster and faster towards the earth, that's worse and worse news. But if the skilled pilot is able to slow the rate of descent, the airplane is still dropping. It's still losing altitude, but not as fast as it was before. With each passing second, it's dropping fewer feet than it did the previous second. Well, if that trend continues and it continues for long enough before the airplane hits the earth, then it's going to reach a point where the airplane is flying horizontal, not going down any longer and not going up. And from there, it can start climbing again. I think that's where we're at. We're, uh, we're not at horizontal flight yet. We're still going down, but perhaps not quite as fast as we were before, maybe. Or maybe we are moving, hopefully, in a direction where the rate of descent is starting to slow down. Let's hope. But that we are still heading downwards, that we are still moving in the direction of the third world, whether it's water or transport or corruption or housing and shanty towns and the so-called homeless, the, the essence of tribalism, public hygiene, um, the power of the tribe of the prosecutors, the suppression of speech and many other metrics of the third world. Uh, at the moment, we are moving downwards. We are moving in the direction of the third world doesn't have to be that way, and it didn't used to be that way. Until the 1960s, America was not only a proud first world nation, it was the leading first world nation. I pray that we do never become the leading third world nation. Uh, please do visit the website, and uh, go ahead, and please go ahead and... Uh, Get yourself or somebody you care about a copy of Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding the Marriage Secrets from Eden. You can look up that product at rabbidaniellappin.com. That's our website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. And go to the store section, read about Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding the Marriage Secrets from Eden. As I say, uh, go ahead, invest in a copy. Make sure that you and your spouse or you and your intended spouse or you and somebody you'd like to be your spouse uh, listen to that together. And when you've done that, make sure other people in your orbit who need that information also get a chance to uh, listen to that. I would appreciate that. And uh, thank you very much indeed for doing so. Um, the uh, website again, rabbidaniellappin.com. It's also a place where you can read up the frequently asked questions. And it's also a place where you can communicate with me. Love hearing from you. Anything to ask me, tell me, say to me, go ahead and do that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Thanks so much for being part of the show. I appreciate you telling others about it. And I love watching the download figures climb, whether it's on 
iTunes or YouTube or SoundCloud or The Blaze or wherever you're listening, uh, be sure to let people know about it. I appreciate that very much indeed. I want to wish you uh, for the coming week, a week of good times with your families, good times with your faith, good times with your friends, and good times with your romance and your finance, all important parts of life. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks for listening. God bless.